The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture passage is from Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. You can find that on page 823 in the Black Pew Bible, if you're going to follow along. So please stand with me as I read God's word. Luke 17, starting in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is God's word. Good morning, Jesus family. Well, we get the, uh, the privilege of anchoring ourselves under the word of God this morning. Uh, this past week, you've had a lot of voices speaking to you this week, yes? And some of them not always pointing you to Jesus, But this morning, we get the privilege of being able to come and hear our God speak to us this morning through his word. Amen? And so that's what we are here to do, is to listen to God through his word so that we can walk in obedience to our king. Our sermon title this morning is going to be called Saving Faith, because that is what you're going to see as it relates to this Samaritan that we are introduced to down there in verse 16 And Jesus is going to highlight something that is true and unique about him that sets him apart from the other nine lepers. And it's this idea that you see in verse 19 where Jesus is going to tell the Samaritan leper that your faith has made you well or your faith has saved you. In other words, this Samaritan has been saved by faith. And so that's why our sermon title this morning is Saving Faith. The main idea, if you just want to wrap up these verses here, verses 11 through 19 into a unique sentence, it's this, don't stop believing this truth that sinners are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Don't stop believing this. Don't lose sight of this truth. What you're going to see here in a moment when we get into our text after we pray here is that this fourth discipleship theme is starting. And we know it's starting because Luke gives us another travel marker, another reminder in verse 11 that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. But if you think about it, we find ourselves in chapter 17. In other words, there's been 16 chapters worth of content that Luke has been giving to us in our pursuit of Jesus. 
And so what he's going to do is he's actually going to encapsulate all of what we've seen so far about why Jesus has come and what he has come to accomplish. It's being truncated down into one miracle, these nine verses, because he wants us to remember that as we consider how to live as citizens in the kingdom of God, what is it that we are to never lose sight of, to never stop believing? It's this, that sinners are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? And so let's pause, let's pray, let's ask the Holy Spirit to empower the proclamation of his word from this text, and then we'll dive into the text and we'll go from there. So let's pray. Father, I'm asking that you would glorify your name, that Jesus, you would receive the worship and the praise the adoration you're worthy to receive as we consider what you can do and that you do in the lives of people, and that's saved sinners. Holy Spirit, we confess this, that we need you. We need you to not only help me to proclaim the truths this morning through your power, from God's word, but we need you to right now open our eyes to see Jesus, to open our minds, to understand the scriptures before us, to make the applications that we need made in our lives so that we're not just hearers of the word only, but that we leave this morning empowered by the Spirit, having seen Jesus as doers of the word, walking in happy, glad obedience to Christ, our forever King. So King Jesus, we pray these things in your name for your glory. Amen. I want to ask you a series of questions, and these series of questions are designed to help you uh, wrap your mind around this, this discipleship theme that Luke is laying out before us here in this middle part of Luke's gospel. These questions go like this. If Jesus is the king of kings, then where is his kingdom at? Where is his kingdom at? Or you could ask this question, well, what does his kingdom look like? You see this language used often in the scriptures, that King Jesus has a kingdom, his kingdom has come, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We pray prayers like this. But what does this kingdom look like? Can this kingdom be seen or is it unseen here in the present? When will his kingdom come? Is it a kingdom that is here now, or is there a delay in its arrival? Alongside all of this, as it relates to these questions, another question that we could ask is this. How are the Savior's people, how are Jesus' people, to live as citizens of this kingdom? Is there something that you and I are supposed to be actively doing as kingdom citizens in the here and now? Is there a work that King Jesus is calling us to in our pursuit of him in the here and now? Or once we are saved and we are drawn in as kingdom citizens, is it just a sit back, relax, take it easy, coast, let it ride until King Jesus comes riding back in the clouds and then something kicks into 
to place. What's, what are the answers to the questions that we've just said? Well, the good news is this, that starting here in this text and running all the way into the middle of Luke 19, Luke is giving us answers to, this, to these questions so that we can have certain assurance for what it looks like to follow Jesus as the king. If you have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, this language you see the Bible use is we are everyday disciples. We are Jesus people, but we are also citizens of a kingdom. We once were citizens of Satan's dark kingdom outside of Christ. But Colossians 1 tells us that when we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, there is a transferring work that takes place where the God of the ages resurrected Jesus Christ. That faith in Christ means that we now have new life. And in that moment of new life, we are transplanted out of Satan's dark kingdom and we're transferred into the good news kingdom of King Jesus. You're now a citizen in the kingdom of the King of Kings. And this is good news. The question is, well, what does that mean for me? Tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., when I'm trying to go to work or take care of kids or talking with my roommate... Questions like these that we've been asking have answers, and those answers begin starting in our passage this morning. And using this fourth and final travel marker in verse 11, where Luke tells us that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. If you remember, he's been using this language ever since the end of Luke chapter 9. He consistently reminds us, don't forget, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And then he explains some things about Jesus. Then he says again, don't forget, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And he explains some more things. And for a third time, he said, don't forget, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And he explains some more things. For the fourth time now, he says, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Well, the question is, why does he have to keep reminding us of this? Luke is giving us a heads up that, listen, a new section of thought is taking place. A new theme is here in front of you because what you need to know is this, that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to accomplish what only Jesus can accomplish in Jerusalem. And that is to bear the wrath of God for sinners so that he will die, be buried, and resurrect from the dead in making a way for sinners to be made right with God. But if you remember that every time that Luke gives one of these little travel markers, hey, I'm, he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to Jerusalem, there's always a question and an answer right on the heels of this reminder that he's going to Jerusalem. And it's always that question which gives us the theme of the discipleship sandwich that we've talked about that Luke wants us to wrestle with. And in Luke 17, if you cast your eyes down to verse 20, there's the question. The question is on the lips of a Pharisee who comes to Jesus and asks, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus answers there in verse 21 that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And then for the remainder of 17, 18, and through the middle of 19, Luke piles on evidence after evidence to help us wrestle with the realities of what it means for this fact that the coming of the Savior's kingdom is here in the midst of you. What does that mean for me as a daily 
pursuer of Jesus. Now, wrestling with this question, I'm, I'm doing my part in trying to help you see that this question here before us isn't something that we should just go, like, I don't know that I care, Pastor Jonathan, thank you very much, right? Wrestling with the question, when will the kingdom of God come, for many of us might feel extremely unimportant right now. It might feel like this question has absolutely no bearing on your daily life. I mean, after all, many of us are just simply struggling to get by in our daily lives. Many of us are just struggling to figure out how to get kids to soccer practice, to get supper on the table, how to make sure our budget is is bouncing so we can pay the bills. These are the things that consume real life and which consume many of our lives. Thus, spending what little mental and emotional energy we have left in the midst of all of these things on trying to figure out when God's kingdom will come, this question that's presented before us in Luke 17, it feels like I'm about to waste what very little precious resources I have left at the end of the day on something that I'm not quite positive is really worth me spending that kind of energy on. Anybody here? When will God's kingdom come? It's like, yeah, I don't know if that's the most pressing question in my life at this stage in the game. But according to Jesus, here in this text, actually nothing could be further from the truth. You see, everyday disciples are expectant people. And as kingdom citizens, we live with the concrete certainty that King Jesus, he is coming back. Amen? But we are also an in-between kind of people. So we're expectant people. Our eyes are on the horizon. There is a day when King Jesus who arrived the first time as a little baby, is arriving the second time as the king of kings, enthroned, white horse, and he's going to wrap up the end of the ages, and he's going to usher in the tangible, forever realities of his kingdom. And we live in light of that certain expectation, but we also live in light of this, that we're living in between those arrivals, aren't we? The first Christmas happened some 2,000 years ago, arrival number one. Arrival number two hasn't happened yet. We're an in-between kind of people, and this means that we live in between those two arrivals. In other words, you and I here, November of 2023, we are living in a period of delay. But the danger in the delay, the danger that could potentially seize our heart and our mind is that the delay and the monotony of life in the midst of the delay can rock kingdom citizens to sleep and we begin to lose sight of how we should live in light of King Jesus showing up again. The diapers, the daily commutes, meal preps, Meetings, all of these take place in the delay, thus the importance of our text this morning where Luke is going to roll into this last slice of his gospel sandwich and say, listen, before we go any further, right, those two pieces of bread in Luke's gospel sandwich, right, chapters one through nine were the bread, first piece of bread, all about this idea of like Jesus, here is his resume that proves why he has what it takes to accomplish salvation. Jesus just ain't some random nobody from Galilee, 
Here are his credentials which prove he can accomplish salvation. Here, in a couple of weeks, when we get into the new year, we'll see the back piece of Luke's gospel sandwich, that back piece of bread, so to speak, where from 19 through 24, he's going to present us with all the evidence of how Jesus accomplishes the salvation that he proves that he has the credentials to do. The middle piece, the, the, the cheese and the meat and the lettuce, the tomato, this middle part of the sandwich, Luke's says now in light of what Jesus can accomplish here are his credentials in light of what he did accomplish through his cross and resurrection what does that mean for you and me in everyday life and right now he is saying this to us that we should not dare not rock ourselves to sleep where we begin to operate with an unbiblical belief as it relates to salvation. Don't stop believing this. In the midst of the diapers and the daily commutes, in the midst of meal prep and in meetings, sinners are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This isn't a back burner issue for the kingdom citizen. It is a front burner out in front of me every day because whether it's me with my kids at home whether I'm a teacher at Franklin Elementary, whether I'm an employee for the state, a nurse inside Memorial or St. John's, whether I'm a mommy, a daddy, a grandma, a grandpa, a child, a student, doesn't matter. The monotony of life in the delay is true, but don't stop believing this truth that sinners are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is how we are to live in light of the coming of God's kingdom. We fight to keep in sight the bigger picture. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, verse 11, for a reason. He's going there to do what must be done so that sinners can be saved. So whether you are a Christian already or trying to figure out Christianity, actually this this text of these 10 lepers being healed, it's actually a text for you, Christian or non-Christian, trying to figure this Jesus thing out. Because in the healing of the 10 lepers, we discover that the mercy and salvation we must have comes from Jesus Christ alone. So if you are already a Christian, these verses should land on you this morning and stir within your heart, praise God, that I have received mercy and I have found salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is an invitation to come and worship as this text is proclaimed. But if you are here this morning not a Christian, these verses are an invitation for you to come and see you can find the mercy you need for your soul and you You can find the salvation you need in Christ alone. So come and pay attention to the ten lepers. Notice point number one, verses 11 through 16, is this, that you and I need the mercy of Jesus. You and I need the mercy of Jesus. So in your copy of Scripture, look at your Bible. Have it open there, starting in verse 11. Notice how the text begins. Here it is. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance, lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
So what we have here is a picture of men who know their desperate need. They're not a confused group of men. These are men who know their desperate need. Thus, they issue a request for mercy. That's what you see in verses 12 to 13. They are men in need of mercy. They know where they can find mercy, and so they go and request, Jesus, Master, please give us mercy. Show us mercy. Notice that because of their leprosy, they must stand at a distance. If you remember from our time not too long ago, when we were preaching through the Old Testament book of Leviticus, that this little phrase makes sense. If you had the disease of leprosy, a skin disease, you were not to be in community with your family, community with your city, your neighborhood. You had to be separated. You had to be isolated. You had to stand at a distance from people. And unless you as a leper were healed, your lot in life was isolation. But notice that this isolation that separated them from their community and family around them, it did nothing to dampen their desperation. See, some of us stand, live, go to sleep, work, eat in isolation because of our sin. Our sin keeps us separated, but... In God's kindness, he opens your eyes to see that even though I am isolated and maybe reaping the consequences of my sin or I'm isolating myself because I want to enjoy my sin, not too dissimilar to some of the language we heard in that video this morning, but notice that as it crossed paths with that young lady up there, her isolation led her to come to the place where in desperation she calls out, Jesus, I need your mercy applied to my accounts. And that's exactly what we see here with these ten lepers. They lift up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And notice that their cry was a confession of their confidence. You don't show up asking Jesus for mercy if you're not confident that Jesus can give you mercy. You cry out to Jesus, I need you to give me mercy now because I am confident that Jesus can give me what I'm asking for in this moment. Their cry was a confession. We are confident in Jesus. Jesus, you can be merciful. Jesus, we need your mercy. Jesus, please give us what you can give. Apply it to us. Give it to us, please, Jesus. And it's this request for mercy that results in mercy received there in verse 14. Do you see it? When Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. A request for mercy results in mercy received. Now, notice though, something unique happens After that healing in verse 14, while 10 lepers were cleansed and healed, look at verse 15, only one of the 10, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. In this verse, we're presented with this double shock in light of the miracle 
that takes place in the lives of those ten lepers. The first shock is that one of the lepers was a Samaritan. Do you see that there at the end of verse 16? Luke tells us that out of the ten who received that cleansing, healing, merciful request received, one of them comes back, praises God, falls on face, gives thanks to Jesus, and Luke says, as a little narrator note, I don't know, whenever I hear the little narrator note kind of stuff, for some reason Morgan Freeman comes into mind, and he was a Samaritan. Like, why do we need to know that? Like, what's going on here? There's a shock kind of aspect going on here. Remember this, in the eyes of Jesus' Jewish audience, this Samaritan would have been the most unlikely of people to be saved. Sometimes we look around at those in our lives and we stop believing. I don't know that Jesus can save that sinner. I mean, there's messed up, and then there's messed up, and then there's like a whole nother level of messed up, and this man, this woman is like light years beyond like that level of messed up. I mean, there's sinners, and there are sinners, and this person is a sinner, and I'm not sure if Jesus has what it takes to be able to save a sinner like this. Remember of everything that we heard in the last theme. Remember, someone came to Jesus and said to Jesus, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said, let's not concentrate on the few. Let's, let's ask this question, will those who are saved be you? Are you right with God? Because Jesus then goes on to respond, many are going to be saved. People are going to be coming from north, south, east, and west into my kingdom, if we want to use this language. This isn't just a Jewish thing. There will be Jewish people saved, but there's going to be people coming from north, south, east, west. Then remember what he said, that those who are last will be first. Those who are first will be last in response to this question. In other words, there's people we look around and go, okay, if someone's getting into heaven, this cat's getting into heaven. This man, this woman, they seem to have it all put together. They seem to be living in a way that makes right. They're very religious. They bring their Bible. They pray the prayers. They do all this stuff. But we're going to be surprised in heaven one day to find out, like, where, where is this person at? And they're not going to be there. The ones that we assumed would be first are actually going to be last. Why? Because they're banking in their works and good deeds to get into heaven and not on Jesus. And there's people you're going to turn around and look at and go like, you're here? Why on earth are you sitting with me at the supper table of the Lamb enjoying the eternal feast with Christ the King forever? Because they'll say something along the lines of the lost son in the parable of the prodigal son. I came to my senses one day and I saw that the Father loved me, so I went to my Father and said, Father, I confess before heaven and earth I've sinned against you and I've sinned. And then God stopped us off right in that moment and said, saved by faith. I think the reason why Luke puts this little narrative, narrator little thing, now he was a Samaritan, is to simply remind us there are going to be folk in heaven, kingdom citizens eating with you at the banquet, the royal banquet of King Jesus for all eternity, and there are going to be people that are going to blow your mind. Don't stop believing Jesus is in the business of saving sinners. Amen? Some of us could get up here and be like, bro, if you knew like one-tenth of my life and how I came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would assume 
that I would never be here based upon the details of my life. But Jesus is a Savior who is drawn to sinners and sufferers, and he plucks us up out of the muck and the mire of sin, and he sets us on the solid rock of himself. Are you striving to enter through the narrow door of Jesus Christ for salvation? Some of us here are the Samaritans. And I think that's why Jesus highlights, or Luke highlights, this idea of this shock. Because we've learned through Luke's gospel that Jesus is in the business of receiving sinners. He's in the business of calling all sinners to repentance. And praise God that it's not just proper, upper crust, white collar sinners. But praise God that Jesus Christ is calling Luke 15, younger son, pigsty sinners like me and like you and some of us are. Amen? Now, that's the first shock. The second shock, though, is this. The second shock is that while 10 out of 10 lepers were cleansed, guess what? Only 1 out of 10 turns back to Jesus. You would assume 10 out of 10 cleansed and healed would result in 10 out of 10 forming a little, a little, little song group, and they would just all start singing their praises to God and start falling on their face, but it's not. Only one out of ten turns back to Jesus. Ten out of ten lepers were ready to acknowledge the power of Jesus to heal. But listen, only one out of ten had genuine interest in the person of Jesus himself. It seems that for nine of the lepers, Jesus was a commodity to be used. Jesus was a means to an end. They wanted the gift and not Jesus the giver. They wanted Jesus' benefits but cared little for Jesus himself. Notice the kindness of King Jesus. John 2 tells us Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men and yet in his kindness he still heals those nine. He cleanses the nine but the contrast stands out out of those nine versus that one that there is something going on different at the level of the heart for this one Samaritan leper. There's something going on there where he with his nine companions go we need to get to Jesus. Jesus has power. Jesus can heal us. Jesus can be merciful. So for the ten of us we're going to go and we're going to find Jesus. But apparently for the nine, there's something different operating there at the level of the heart in contrast to the one where it seems that the nine wanted Jesus to heal them for healing's sake, but for this one, they wanted Jesus to heal them for Jesus' sake, for his glory, for his honor, because I'm going to rest on Jesus and his power and his ability to save me. So there's the contrast. It's the shock. The Samaritans turning back to Jesus. The Samaritans praising God. His falling on his face at Jesus' feet. His thanksgiving. What is all of this? It's this, it's evidence of a life truly changed by Jesus. You're going to read about it in Nicodemus. Do you remember the Nicodemus story? Wee little man and a wee little man was he. Did anyone grow up in church singing, singing this song if you guys are in church? He's robbing people, tax collector, fleecing the people that he's a part of. Meets Jesus. And then you get this little tidbit where he's like, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give back what I gave and I'm going to do it fourfold and I'm going to restore what I was 
stealing. When we read that, the danger might be to go, okay, he's doing this, and then he does this, and then Jesus uses similar language of like, hey, salvation has come to this house today. It looks like because he gave back what he stole, salvation has come, but that's putting the cart before the horse. What you see in Luke 19, in light of what we're seeing here, is he doesn't give back in order to be saved. It's because he met Jesus, and he got saved. And then out of the overflow of that action, the evidence of his life is this. My life now looks different. Because Jesus has saved me. And this is what you see here. This evidence of a life truly changed on the part of the Samaritan leper. Now this part of the miracle of these verses, it is just very, very challenging to us, brothers and sisters. It's challenging because the Samaritan's response prompts you to ask, is the Samaritan's response to Jesus my response to Jesus. Is Jesus a commodity to be used in my life? Or is Jesus the king to be worshipped? Am I doing the Jesus church thing because of the benefits I get out of it? Or is Jesus the only benefit I'm here for? I want Jesus. Do I have the same glory-giving, Jesus-exalting evidence in my life, or am I more like the nine? I'm very happy to acknowledge Jesus, very happy and glad to tip my hat and to believe in the power of Jesus, but the evidence of my life is there is no surrender to the rule of Jesus. Friends, the difference in response between the Samaritan and the nine reveals some deep truths with eternal consequences. Notice the nine lepers who came to Jesus and said, we need your mercy. We need you to heal us. We are confident in your power are only described as being cleansed and healed. It is only the Samaritan leper who in the same boat with his nine buddies says, Jesus, I believe in your power. Jesus, I'm here because I need to be healed. He, though, is described as cleansed, healed, and saved. And the difference seems to be the attitude of the heart as evidenced by his actions in 15 and verse 16 where the overflow of worship in his heart seems to be being born out of a heart that is genuinely saying this, if Jesus is going to save me, my faith and my hope rests in Jesus alone. I'm hoping for healing. But whether healing comes or not, my hope is in Jesus. And that seems to be the saving difference between the Samaritan and the other nine. See, this is what Jesus is saying in verse 19, where, where we learn that I am saved through faith in Jesus alone. That's point number two. Verses 17 through 19, I am saved through faith in Jesus alone. Look at your copy of Scripture there in verse 17. Then Jesus answered. He's talking now to this Samaritan, once former leper. We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine at? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, 
rise, go your way. And here's the phrase, your faith has made you well. You see right there, verse 19 explains what makes the Samaritan leper different. His response to Jesus is the actions of someone who not only knows the mercy of healing, but also knows, guess what, the mercy of salvation. The phrase, your faith has made you well, can also equally be translated like this, your faith has saved you. That little word, made well, in the English language is the exact same word for salvation, for being saved. So it's your faith has made you well. It could also be your faith has saved you. In other words, what Jesus is reassuring this Samaritan is this. You have been saved by faith. You're saved by faith. And what we then begin to notice is this little phrase seems to pop up a handful of times throughout Luke's gospel. So if you go back into chapter 7, verse 50, where the extremely sinful woman comes breaking into a party and bows down at the end of Jesus' feet, cracks open the perfume bottle, and everyone is looking at her going, what on earth does this raunchy sinner have any right to be here? And what you see is when we preach that was this wasn't the overflow or this wasn't the actions of trying to get something out of Jesus. At some point in time, she had come to faith in Jesus because Jesus looks at her and says, Sister, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You have peace with God because you're trusting in me by faith for your salvation. And the overflow of it was she can't prevent the tears streaming down her face as she weeps at the feet of the king who is her savior. You go one chapter later, what you have is the woman caught, or the woman struggling with the issue of blood, stuck in between the Jairus daughter healing story there in Luke 8. Do you remember that one? She comes up and is fighting through the crowds. There's a chosen episode on this one, if, you, if you're watching that show and you've seen it. Comes up and lays hold of the hem of his garment, and then Jesus looks, says, power's gone out of me, what's going on? And she comes up and basically uh, has this conversation with Jesus, and then Jesus is in response to this sister is, listen, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, what is Jesus saying? Because you came and you touched a piece of my cloth, like all of a sudden you're right with God? No. Born out of her faith in Christ, she said, I need to go to Jesus. And she makes a beeline to Jesus. Now we see it here again to this Samaritan leper. Jesus is speaking these exact same words of assurance to the Samaritan leper. His salvation, the Samaritan's salvation has come through faith alone. His hope of salvation is resting in Jesus alone. He came to the place where he said this, I am going to entrust myself into the all-sufficient hands of King Jesus. And by faith, I am trusting that Jesus is able to save me, period. And then Jesus looks at him and says, you are one who is right with God. You have been saved by faith in me. And just as it was for the Samaritan leper, guess what, saints? So it is for every sin-dead sinner of every age. There's nothing different with the Samaritan sinner who needed to be saved as it is with Springfield sinners who need to be saved. Yeah? 
we too must be saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This morning, we saw two little ones, Judson and Karis. They got up and they went public in their trust that Jesus Christ is able to save sinners, just like the Samaritan did back here in this account in Luke 17. And the question for you and me to wrestle with personally And the question then to wrestle with for those in our life around us is this. Have you come to the same place where you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Let's pray. Jesus, you are truly worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. Jesus, you are truly worthy of us coming like the Samaritan turning from sin, turning our back on sin, turning and running to you, praising God, throwing ourselves down at your feet, worshiping you, giving you thanks for the salvation you can bring. Lord, would you do this in the hearts right now of those who would say, Jesus is my Savior. Would you stir up a heart of worship? Would you stir up the joy of salvation? Would you stir up within us the delight that comes from casting our mind to the day that Jesus Christ saved us and then glory and worship in our seats and here in a moment in song as we consider the good news that Jesus is a Savior who saves sinners. But Lord, for some of us, we might be here this morning and we're, just, we're not there. We can say with, with certainty, like that just doesn't describe me. I think the invitation of the text today is to come. It could be you today. <laughs> to come, turn from sin, turn to Jesus, and in faith, cast yourself on him as your only hope of salvation. Christ, wherever people are at, would you lead us in obedience to you? It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.